Our second reading this morning comes from Joshua 20. I will read uh, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he has struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time, Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he has fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that they might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you be with us this morning in the proclamation of your word. We ask that you send us your Holy Spirit. Bind us to one another and bind us to yourself. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to adjust this pulpit. More? Aha. All right, so three cities... On the east side of Jordan, three cities on the west side of Jordan are set aside as cities of refuge. The children of Israel are in the process of creating a new nation from the ground up. And this nation is to be built upon the Torah, the law, which they have received from God at Mount Sinai. For 400 years, the children of Israel lived as outsiders and as slaves in Egypt. But now we find these escaped slaves in a land that's been given to them by God. And they're busy setting up this new state, this new government, this new society. For those who are interested in constitutional law... The settling of the land of Israel is a fascinating study in how you get started. Because a house is only as solid as its foundation. The decisions that are made in the founding of a new nation shape the future of that nation in important ways. And the decision to set aside six cities of refuge in the land of Israel is a sign that this new nation 
is going to be built upon justice, which holds to God's law, and to mercy, which restores people to the community. So let's begin by talking about the nuts and bolts of how these cities of refuge were supposed to work. And then we're going to spend some time thinking about what these cities say about uh, fundamental biblical values uh, that we should embrace today. The events in uh, Joshua chapter 20 are happening around 45 years after the children of Israel first reached Mount Sinai. When they escaped from Egypt and Pharaoh's army, the Israelites make a beeline for Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they receive the Torah. And then from Mount Sinai, the Israelites march up near the borders of the promised land, which God has told them to enter. But feeling a little unsure of themselves, they send in 12 spies to check out the land. Ten of these spies come back in a panic, and they're saying the land is full of giants. If we go in there, we're going to be crushed like grasshoppers. Let's choose a new leader. We'll go back to Egypt. And the other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, they have a different report. They say, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. But as it turns out, the voice of the ten naysayers captures the hearts of the people and infects them with fear and faithlessness, and the people rebel. And so God sends a plague into the camp. Lots of people die. All ten of the faithless spies die. And God condemns the entire generation to wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. But now a new generation has arisen. They're under the leadership of Joshua. They have entered and they have settled the land. 45 years have gone by since the people received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And two places in the Torah, in the book of Numbers... And in the book of Deuteronomy, there are instructions, explicit instructions, about these cities of refuge that God wanted set aside in the promised land. This morning we read part of the description that appears in Deuteronomy, uh, and you can find a similar passage in Numbers chapter 35 if you're interested in looking at that. In Deuteronomy we read this. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities of refuge and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot pursuit... Uh, in hot anger, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Six cities are set aside. Three are on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side. The cities are situated strategically throughout the territory, one in the north, one in the middle, one in the south, on both sides of the Jordan, so that no matter where you live in 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 the land of Israel, it's not too far for you to run to at least one of these cities of refuge. Now, let's talk about the person that we're running from. He's called in Scripture the Avenger of Blood. For us living in a law-governed society, if someone threatens us, 
or commits a crime against us, we call the police. On a couple of occasions, there have been disturbances outside of our house, and my wife has called the police, and they've been on the scene like in a minute. It's like amazing how quickly they can come. But now imagine for a moment a world without police. Imagine if there's some trouble. Imagine if you're threatened and you have no one to call. What do you do? Well, you call the avenger of blood. In ancient times and in some cultures today, that's the person in your family, in your tribe, who would pick up the sword and settle the score for you. That's the person who executes a kind of rough justice on your behalf. In ice hockey and in the mafia, which are roughly equivalent, this person is called the enforcer. Now, I trust that you understand that this kind of taking it into your own hands justice is not what we do as civilized people. One of the things that we give up when we enter civil society is the right to avenge ourselves. We give that right to take the, we give up the right to take the law into our own hands. And we hand that right over to the government. And the Bible teaches that God has instituted governments among us to execute God's justice. Here's what Paul says about this issue. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there are, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who, re, who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What we're witnessing in Joshua chapter 20 is the beginning of a system of government that starts to do away with private justice, private retribution, and begins to replace it with a system of public courts. If you're not living in a totally uncivilized environment, uh, a place where there... I'm sorry, if you are living in a totally uncivilized environment... If you're living in a place where there are no courts, where there are no police that you can turn to or trust, then having an avenger of blood makes some sense. Because if you or your family can't protect yourself, the avenger of blood is going to do this for you. Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century British philosopher, used the phrase, state of nature for this condition where everyone has to fight for themselves. He called it a war of all against all. We might call it every man for himself or dog eat dog. Humans in this state of nature, according to Hobbes, live in continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's Lawless living. And that's not how God wants us to live. But the key 
to moving beyond this state of lawlessness, beyond this state of constant warfare, where we are always fighting to protect ourselves, where avengers of blood chase down and kill people who've done us an injury, the key to moving beyond this state of constant warfare and into a state of peace actually requires a leap of faith. The leap of faith which says, vengeance does not belong to me, but it belongs to God. It's a leap of faith which says, I'm not going to seek revenge for the injury that's done to me, but I'm going to trust that God will settle the account. We see the fundamental root of this move from the chaos of private justice to the more orderly and peaceful public justice in Deuteronomy 32, 34, which Paul then quotes in Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is what's dished out by the avenger of blood. The cultural practice of uh, avenging an injury to someone in your family was common at the time that the promised land was being settled. And as the children of Israel come into this land, God is leading them into a better direction. He's leading them into a, a direction of greater justice and mercy. And that requires giving up the right of revenge. And it gives that right to God alone. At a practical level, a key piece of this change is these six cities of refuge that were established throughout the land where someone who's being hunted by an avenger of blood can run and take refuge. Now we shouldn't think of these cities of refuge Uh, as a place where you could run as a criminal and simply escape justice. Notice what we read in Joshua chapter 20. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. The city gate was the court of law in ancient Israel. The city gate was an open public place where legal cases could be heard and coolly deliberated by the elders of the community. So the man on the run is not running from justice. He's running to justice. So let me bring this home to the 21st century. I fear that too often our cries for justice are really cries for vengeance. Something's happened to us. Something bad has happened to our family and we loudly demand justice and we're confident that we know exactly what justice looks like and generally it looks like someone else getting their skulls smashed in, which is what the avenger of blood would do for us. Or in this era of social media and cyber justice, it looks like someone getting their reputation or their livelihood smashed by a self-appointed cyber vigilante. There are lots of problems with vengeance and lots of good reasons for an individual to give up the right for vengeance. Let me name four. Number one, vengeance is exacted in the heat of the moment. 
in anger. Listen to the description in Deuteronomy. The avenger of blood in hot, per, in hot anger pursues the manslayer and overtakes him and strikes him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die. When we're angry, we're not terribly rational. And we're probably not very just either. Think about road rage for a minute. According to AAA, more than 1,200 incidents of road rage are reported every year. God only knows how many go unreported. And 6.8% of them result in somebody getting killed. Now, if I've got my math right, that's more than 80 road rage deaths a year in our civilized country. And why? Well, because someone cut me off, because someone's driving too slowly. Anger is a great motivator for vengeance, but it rarely leads to justice. Number two, we are not the best judges regarding offenses that we have suffered. No one gets through this life without having people do mean or stupid things to them. And when those things happen, we're not always the best judge of the difference between mean and stupid. And this difference between mean and stupid is actually very important in law. Let's talk about killing somebody. If someone kills another person out of meanness, we call it murder. And the law of Moses is actually crystal clear about murder. The murderer must be executed. There are no exceptions. There are never any extenuating circumstances. But not every person who is killed is killed out of meanness. Sometimes they're killed out of stupidity or negligence. In 2013, demolition contractors working next door to the Salvation Army store on Market Street in Philadelphia carelessly caused a building to collapse and they killed six people. And the contractors responsible for the collapse were convicted of manslaughter, not murder, and they are in jail. Our reading from Deuteronomy 19 gives the example of someone killed by a loose axe head. That's stupid, for sure. You need to check your equipment before you use it. It's stupid, but it's not murder. When something bad happens to us, we quickly assume that the person acted intentionally, evilly, out of meanness, when in reality they might have only been stupid or negligent, which is bad, but not quite as bad. And because we are not the best judge of cases involving ourselves, because our own injury tends to make us think the worst of people, it is wise to give up the right of judgment and the right of vengeance to God and to the authorities that God has established among us. Number three, vengeance leads to more vengeance. The cycle of vengeance doesn't end until someone says, I'm not going to take vengeance. All of us have heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys and their famous feud, two families living on the border between West Virginia and Kentucky. The first killing happens in 1861. Uh, the last killing happened uh, in 1891. More than a dozen uh, family members die. Uh, and the governors of both of these states actually 
had to threaten to pull out the militia to put an end to the violence. I'm pretty sure that in each case when some new person was killed, there was a sense of personal righteousness on the part of the families as they were settling the score for a previous killing, as they exacted revenge for an injury that they had suffered. But that's precisely the kind of world that God does not want us to live in. And so he tells us that vengeance belongs to him and not to us. Number four, when we act in vengeance, we often extract a disproportionate penalty for the injury we've suffered. That's what happens in road rage. A person's killed because they're driving too slow or because they merge the wrong way. That's out of proportion. It's just crazy. The Bible does provide for punishment in cases of crimes and penalties, in cases of civil offenses, but those punishments and penalties are proportional to the offense. So we don't take vengeance ourselves, and we hand vengeance over to a neutral third party because they can be cool in making a judgment about the offense, and they can give a proportional penalty. The avenger of blood... He goes running in hot pursuit with the intention to kill. But because the cities of refuge are now in place, the person who's being chased can run into that city and make his case to the city of, uh, the city elders who act as his judge. And those judges are able to act fairly because they've got no vested interest in the case. So all of this stuff about avengers of blood and cities of refuge might seem arcane, it might seem like it only is for historians of the early Iron Age, but we should ask what this says to us living in the Information Age. What does this say about how we should organize justice in our society and in our lives? I think that Joshua chapter 20 says several things about biblical standards of justice, and I believe that these standards apply Today, in the same way they did uh, 3,000 years ago. So let me lift up just two. First, justice should be deliberate and not in haste. And second, our system of justice should be inclined toward restoration rather than retribution. Let me look at these in order. First, justice should be deliberate and not done in haste. Now that might sound like the opposite of the familiar legal maxim, justice delayed is justice denied. Martin Luther King in his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail wrote, We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Now we don't know who first gave voice to that idea. It might have been William Penn who wrote in 1693 to delay justice is injustice. Our courts should work efficiently. Our legal system should move with deliberate speed. Our legal system should be protected from people who try to delay, block, or sidetrack justice. But I would also like to point out that there is another court that needs to slow down. There's another court that needs to put the brakes on. And that's the court of public opinion. In this era of social media, 
and round-the-clock news coverage, we have become too quick to judge, too quick to condemn. And we need to slow down. An amateur video is made and posted to social media. It's picked up by talking heads and newspapers. And the judgment is made before the situation is understood. And as has happened in one glaring case recently, even when the professional journalist realized their error, the retractions were so muted and so long after the fact that the damage was already done, not only to the maligned individual, but to the fabric of our civil society. We need to slow down in passing judgment. Second, our system of judgment should be inclined toward restoration rather than toward retribution. This elaborate system of cities of refuge was created to protect people who had killed people. Okay, This city of refuge system protects people who literally have blood on their hands. We could ruthlessly say, well, let them die. We'd be better off without them anyway. And that would teach other people to be more careful in the future. But God's system of justice, while maintaining some absolute boundaries that cannot be crossed, always looks for opportunities to restore. Yes, you killed this man. But no, you did not intend to. So let's restore you to the community. Restoration is expensive. Six cities have to be maintained in this system of refuge. But the expense of restoration is a price well spent because we're talking about people who are themselves, every one of them, immeasurably valuable. In the United States, 2.3 million people are incarcerated. That's almost one out of every hundred Our rate of incarceration is the highest in the world. We have 4.4% of the world's population, but we have 22% of the world's prisoners. Why? As a nation, we need to ask ourselves, is our legal system geared toward retribution or toward restoration? Is our legal system motivated by a desire to inflict pain and punishment? Or is it motivated by a desire to see people restored to the community? Now, I don't want to end this sermon on a note about social ills. Because most of those things are beyond our control. And because we all too easily exempt ourselves and blame the other guy. I don't want to end this sermon on a note about social ills because our first calling as Christian is to lives of personal holiness. And I think the greatest positive influence we can have on our society will happen by getting our own hearts right. So let me bring this home to us individually. How are we doing in our marriages... And in our families, and in our churches, and in our neighborhood, are we obeying God's word when we receive the direct command, a command repeated both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because if we're not obeying this commandment, we're not only making trouble for ourselves and for our families and for our communities, but we're also sinning against God in a diabolical way. Violating this commandment is the result of one of two sins, both of which are terrible. The first reason for violating this command is because we think that we are God. If I extract vengeance, then I claim that I am God. And I usurp God's exclusive right to vengeance. That's what got Satan into trouble. Satan wants to be God. And because of that sin, he will spend eternity in hell. And the second reason for violating this command is because we don't believe that God is telling the truth. Or we don't believe that God can do what he says he'll do. And that's the sin of unbelief. And what possible hope for us is there if we don't believe God and trust his word? So this morning I want us to just spend a few minutes before we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper in reflecting in our own lives and in our own relationships. Are we seeking retribution for harm that's been done to us? Are we punishing the people in our lives? Or are we restoring them to fellowship and to community? Let us pray. Almighty God, you are a God of justice, but you are also a God of mercy. And we pray this day that we would be inclined toward mercy and toward restoration and that we would leave justice and retribution in your hands, that we would trust you with those cases where we've been hurt personally. Lord, give us the freedom to give up the desire for revenge. Give us the faith to trust you that justice will be done in the end. Lord, we do pray for our country. And we pray that we would be a land of law and order, that we would be a land of justice and a land of mercy. We pray that we would live with one another in our communities in orderly ways, in loving ways. Teach us how to be good neighbors, how to be good citizens. Teach us as well, Lord, how to be good husbands and fathers and mothers and wives. May we treat the people in our lives with great care and tenderness, seeking always to restore fellowship when fellowship is broken. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.